Stanford coming at you from Asheville, North Carolina, with episode number 19 of the podcast. Today is the first Sunday in Advent, the start of the liturgical year in the Christian church, the start of the cycle of the holiday season of Christmas. And today we're going to talk about Advent and the meaning of Christ in modern Gnosticism. So sit back. Get you a nice beverage you like to drink, kick your feet up, and get ready to join me as we seek the mysteries. This lesson is taken from the book of Sophia. Seek all of you after the light, so that the power of your soul that is in you may live. Do not desist from seeking by day and by night until you find the purifying mysteries of the light, which refine the body of matter and make it a pure light, very refined. Do to all men who come to you and believe in you and listen to your words what is worthy of the mysteries of the light. Give the mysteries of the light and do not hide them from them. For he who shall give life to a single soul and liberate it Besides the light that is in his own soul, he shall receive other glory in return for the soul he has liberated. Welcome, everyone, to episode 19 of Modern Gnostic. I'm glad you're tuning in and listening on today, November 29th, the first Sunday of the Advent season in the year 2020. Um, As many of you know, and maybe some of you do not know, Advent is the beginning of the liturgical Christian calendar, and then the remainder of the year follows the cycle all the way through the life of Christ to his death and resurrection and ascension in heaven, and then cycling back to the birth of the Christ again at the time of Advent. The season of Advent consists of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and culminates with the holiday of Christmas and the ritual celebration of the birth of Christ. And so, for those of us following in the Christian mystery tradition, this is a very profound season, and a season rich and deep with meaning. Uh, We are turning our attention to preparing the inner manger of ourselves for the birth of the Christ within us and in the world. And I wanted to take the opportunity 
of the first Sunday in Advent to um, address a very important and weighty listener question that came up. Uh, So one of my listeners and friends, uh, a man that I will just call G for the purpose of the podcast, he will know who he is, uh, has been struggling a lot lately with his engagement with Gnosticism and esoteric Christianity uh, because he has a very strong background in the evangelical movement. Um, G went to seminary in evangelical traditions, was raised in that movement, and then only later on his path did he start discovering esoteric and Gnostic and mystical interpretations of Christianity and goes through periods of being very enthusiastic and drawn to the study of Gnosticism and then having moments of uh, fear and feeling afraid and pulling back from the study of Gnosticism, largely because of the fundamentalist um, religious training that he has received up until this point. And so he had asked me um, when we were talking, what do the Gnostics say about Christ? What do the Gnostics who was Christ to the Gnostics? Um, this is a really good question and a very common question if you're engaging <laughs> in a Christian culture and with Christian people because uh, virtually everything, obviously, uh, in the Christian faith has to do with the person of the Christ and the person of Jesus and Jesus' min- uh, mission on the earth and who and what he is and what that means to us. And so I thought it would be important Uh, to attempt to say some words about what Gnosticism has to say about Christ. Now, this whole topic opens up a very interesting point, um, and one that I struggle a lot with coming up with a good, uh, worthwhile explanations for people uh, for, and it is basically this, um, that perhaps one of the both strengths and weaknesses of what I call modern Gnosticism, um, is that there is not a definitive theology. Um, Gnosticism is not a religion of orthodoxy. And when I say that, what I mean is in more orthodox faiths, um, you have book and tradition to which you can go to for definitive answers on something. So uh, for most people who are brought up in the Christian West, unless they have the benefit of growing up in a family where they are exposed to esoteric interpretations of Christianity, um, can very quickly tell you who and what Jesus was. Jesus is the Son of God. He is part of the Trinity. Um, He took birth of a virgin in a manger. Um, He was God-made man. Um, And the point of Jesus is to atone for the sins of humankind, um, represented by uh, represented by the fall of Adam and Eve, and hence the introduction to sin in the world, and that the sin of mankind is so grave that God had to send His only begotten Son to die in our stead, and that if we believe in Jesus, if we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and that He came here to die for our sins we will be saved from those sins and achieve eternal life. I'm drinking chai tea today. (laughs) As a sidebar, I've cut back a lot on my coffee 
Um, but during the day, still sometimes like to have some caffeine. And as it gets cold here in Asheville, I am learning to really appreciate delicious chai tea with just a little bit of milk and maple syrup. It's delightful. So if you hear me sipping throughout the podcast, I hope you forgive me, but I have a wonderfully warm mug of tea here as I, as I talk with you today. So I think what I basically laid out is the very general um, outline of the concept of the Christ um, in mainstream Christianity. And so my friend G, when he asks who Christ is and who Christ is to the Gnostics, he is coming from this position. And many people um, who have been raised Christian and have been taught this position um, will get very tripped up when looking at Gnosticism and wondering what is the place of Christ in Gnosticism. And again, like I said, this is one of the strengths or maybe weaknesses of Gnosticism is that there is not one definitive answer to this question. So if you look through the volumes and volumes and volumes of various Gnostic scriptures, you will not find a single direct, orthodox, unified, agreed-upon teaching about the Christ. Um, different schools of ancient Gnosticism had very different views on who the Christ was. Uh, some thought that Jesus was just a man like anyone else and that the spirit of the Christ descended upon him at the time of his baptism um, by St. John and that the man Jesus became infused with the spirit of the Christ and then carried out his ministry. Uh, and then at the point of his crucifixion, the Christ spirit left Jesus. And this accounts for the story in the Gospels where Jesus famously cries out on the cross, uh, Father, Father, why have thou forsaken me? And in some of the translations uh, from, from the original language, it is um, spirit, spirit, why have thou forsaken me? Um, as if he is recognizing that this Christ uh, energy or entity has left him at the time of the crucifixion. Um, other schools of ancient Gnosticism uh, recount that the Christ spirit hovered somewhere above the crucifixion scene, watching and laughing as the Roman authorities and the Jews uh, crucified the wrong person, so to speak, um, that Jesus kind of duped them into crucifying this man who he was not. Um, other Gnostics seem to believe very similarly with um, what became the Orthodox Christian view uh, that Jesus was actually the unique Son of God and that he was crucified on the cross and rose days later. So we run into a problem when we start to try to figure out what do the Gnostics think about Christ. And so as I've talked to y'all before in my podcast, um, I very specifically use the term modern Gnosticism when I talk about Gnosticism. And I try to make it very clear that when I'm talking about modern Gnosticism, I am largely talking about the understanding of Gnosticism that is coming to you from me, the man, Brian Stanford. Um, and I, when I teach people, when people come to me for pastoral care or instruction in any of these kinds of things, I try to make it very clear that these are my thoughts and interpretation um, of, of Gnosticism, also based on my own personal experience. Now, saying that, I rely very heavily on Bishop Stefan Heller, 
and his church, the Ecclesia Gnostica, uh, for a lot of my theological understanding. Um, and Bishop Heller has a lot of good books and, and wonderful content on YouTube, and I highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in Gnosticism to research Bishop Stefan Heller, uh, buy his books, listen to his YouTube lectures, and if you can, visit this man. He's, he's uh, in his 80s now. Uh, we are very blessed to still have him with us, and you should definitely avail yourself of the teachings that he has available. And so for today's episode, we're going to rely on two texts from Bishop Heller, and the first is um, called A Gnostic Catechism. And he wrote this for his church, the Ecclesia Gnostica. And unlike, say, a catechism in the Roman Catholic Church or a catechism in the Orthodox Church, the Gnostic Catechism is not meant to be something that you read and then you align yourself and your belief with what it says. The idea is not to lay out the tenets and doctrines and the orthodoxy of the Gnostic faith, and then it's your job to either conform to it or reject it. Um, but the Gnostic Catechism is meant more to be um, teachings, uh, kind of like a collection and a, a presentation of the various Gnostic mythos and the interpretations of those mythos around certain questions. And then one of the beautiful things about Gnosticism is that it is up to the individual person, the individual Christian who is engaging uh, with his or her religion from a Gnostic perspective to pray and meditate and seek answers and understanding uh, with the help of the Spirit and with the help of the saints and with the help of the ancestors and with the help of the Christ to get an understanding and an answer to the deeper questions that you have. And, you know, it occurs to me as I'm saying this, I, I often think of that as a blessing of Gnosticism, but it's also a curse of Gnosticism uh, because let's be honest, it's very helpful and it's very, um, it gives you a very solid place to stand when you have a tradition of orthodoxy that you can just go to for answers. Um, I have a, a, a friend and a coworker who I have ongoing religious discussion with, hopefully he's listening to this episode, um, who is an Orthodox Christian and a very learned Orthodox Christian. And, and oftentimes when we discuss things, he has very quick, ready answers to questions, and it'll take me days to kind of contemplate and think about what uh, you know, what my answer is to the question, and and for a person like me who has these kind of Gnostic tendencies, I love that. It's very it's very fascinating to me. It's it's definitely works with my mind and with how I relate to the world. But to a lot of people, it's very nice to have uh, ready made answers to very hard theological questions, and and to be honest, it creates a very safe container. Um, if you're walking a path, it's very helpful to have a very nice, well-defined path, a path that's been tended by people for generations and generations and generations, and they've cleared off all the brambles, and they've kind of kept the wild animals away, and they've fixed the various bridges that have broken down, and where the pavement comes up, they've you know fixed the pavement and smoothed it back out. And this is kind of how Orthodox traditions work. But in the Western esoteric tradition, if you're familiar with the Grail stories, um, there's a very interesting part in the Grail stories where the various Grail knights are setting out on their quest. 
And the one instruction that they have as they set out on their quest is each one of them has to pick an individual place to enter the forest where there is no trail. The Grail Knights have to make their own trail. And that's a very profound teaching. If you just spend a moment to kind of close your eyes and imagine that, you're setting out on a quest, on a quest for the Holy Grail. It's a quest that means life and death, not just for you, but for the kingdom in which you live. And you are specifically told that you cannot take a well-worn path. You have to go into the thickest, darkest spot of that forest for you and forge your path. And that sounds very exciting to a person like me, but I also recognize how dangerous it really is and how scary it can really be and how easy it can be to get lost. And all of that applies to the Gnostic path. The Gnostic path, the path of Western esotericism and an esoteric engagement in, with Christianity is not meant for everyone. Some people do very well. Most people do very well on a very well-maintained path. And so I would caution people listening to this and thinking about engaging in Gnosticism or people who already engage in Gnosticism, if maybe you wouldn't be better off on a well-worn path. Because cutting your way into the darkest part of the forest is very, very dangerous. And I can say that with experience as a person sitting here. Uh, I turn 48 this year, I believe. I can never remember how old I am. I think I turned 48 this year. <laughs> I turned 48 this year and I have been following this path of cutting off into the darkest part of the woods for a large part of my life. And it's destroyed a whole lot of my life. It really has. It really has. But it also pays off in a, in a lot of beautiful ways. So I say all of that poetic stuff to say there is not one answer to who the Christ is in Gnosticism. And when you read Bishop Heller's Gnostic Catechism, know that you are not buying a book that gives you simple answers. You are buying a book that gives you the mythic outline of the broad Gnostic story taken from many, many, many sources. And it's pointing hints and giving directions. But you have to walk the path of inner development to find the answers. From the perspective of modern Gnosticism, the only way you are ever going to know who or what the Christ is is to meet the Christ. And it's an interesting thing after you have those kinds of experiences, a lot of the orthodox answers kind of lose their significance uh, because someone else can tell you something about a person all day long, but when you know the person, you know what you know. So anyway, we're gonna use um, Bishop Stefan Heller's Agnostic uh, catechism, and we are also going to use another book of his that I really recommend uh, called Gnosticism, New Light on the Ancient Tradition of Inner Knowing by Stefan Heller. And this book, um, it's a lovely book. It's beautifully illustrated, and it covers um, the history of Gnosticism, uh, 
uh, all throughout time up into modern times. Um, it it's, has tons of quotes from uh, from various Gnostic scriptures and various Gnostic saints and thinkers. It talks about the uh, French Gnostic revival, uh, which my tradition comes from and which Bishop Heller's church comes out of and my church comes out of. It's a really, really wonderful book. And so I think what we'll start today is we'll start reading from this book and I'm going to read two short uh, excuse me two short sections uh, from Gnosticism New Light on the ancient tradition of inner knowing uh, from the chapter the Gnostic Christ Savior or Liberator and so what we're going to do is we're going to read those sections and then I'll discuss a little bit about it so we'll start and this is again from the chapter the Gnostic Christ Savior or Liberator. <clears throat> Atonement or Liberation. The dominant contemporary Christian belief is that Jesus came to atone for the sins of humankind and thus make salvation possible. The justification for this belief is, in brief, God created a good world which became a fallen world due to God's wrath once the first humans disobeyed God. Death and suffering were introduced into what was, until then, had been a paradisical creation. In time, God's wrath waned, and he sought to reconcile himself to humankind again. The agent of this reconciliation was God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who was sent by his Father into the world to suffer and to die on the cross for the sins of humanity, including the original sin committed by the ancestors of the human race. The postulates of this atonement theology have come under question as the result of the scientific discoveries of the last two centuries. If death was brought into the world by human sin, how is it that so many life forms perished long before human life appeared on earth? Life was preying upon life long before men and women joined the fray. Perhaps the original creation was not as benign and paradisical as we have thought. Perhaps the world has always been what has aptly been called a giant predatory cafeteria, and humans merely became part of the food chain at a relatively late period. The Gnostic followers of Christ, quite early in the history of the Christian faith, refused to go along with the atonement theology. Even without the evidence of biology and paleontology, they did not accept the notion that a good world had been corrupted by evil humans and then had to be reconciled to a wrathful God by the torment and death of Jesus. Does this mean that Gnostics did not regard Jesus as their Redeemer? Far from it. As we saw earlier, the Gnostics felt that they were strangers on this earth, indeed in this cosmos. One of their teachers, Marcion, calls this world Hec Cellula Creatoris, meaning this prison cell made by the Creator. The Mandian Gnostic scripture, the Ginza, admonishes human beings, quote, Thou wert not from here, and thy root was not of this world, unquote. The Redeemer came not to pacify his angry father by dying in ignominy, but rather to take captivity captive, as a Gnostic phrase expressed it, and liberate the forlorn strangers from the prison cell where they found themselves. People only superficially acquainted with Gnosticism often conclude that to the Gnostic, Salvation or liberation is an unmediated experience requiring no savior. Nothing could be further from the truth. The human spirit, say the Gnostics, came into this world from outside it, and thus the stimulus for liberation must also come from outside. 
True, the liberating spiritual potential resides in the depths, or perhaps better, the heights of the human soul itself, but realization of this potential requires powerful intervention. This assistance is rendered by beings whom certain schools of Gnosticism call messengers of light, salvific, messianic figures sent by the highest godhead. The great Gnostic prophet Mani of Persia states this clearly, quote, Wisdom and good deeds have always from time to time been brought to mankind by the messengers of God. So in one age, they have been brought by the messenger called Buddha to India, in another by Zarathustra to Iran, yet in another by Jesus to the West. Thereupon, this revelation has come down, this prophecy in this later age through me, Mani, the apostle of the God of truth in Babylonia, unquote. Without naming the name of the messenger, the Ginza tells it well, quote, In the name of him who came, in the name of him who comes, and in the name of him who is brought forth, in the name of the great stranger who has fought his way through the worlds, who came, split the firmament, and revealed himself, unquote. In Christian Gnosticism, this great stranger is Jesus. In many scriptures of the Gnostic tradition, he is called the Logos, in others, the Soter, or Healer and Savior, and in many, the Christos, the Anointed One. The exact relationship of these names to each other is not always clear. There are indications that the Gnostics believed that the spiritual Christ descended into the person of Jesus at the time of his baptism in the river Jordan at the hands of John, yet Jesus was also regarded as a holy and supernal being from birth. To sum up, Salvation to the Gnostic means not reconciliation with an angry God by way of the death of his son, but rather liberation from the stupor induced by earthly existence and an awakening by way of Gnosis. Gnostics do not hold that any kind of sin, including that of Adam and Eve, is powerful enough to cause the degradation of the entire manifest world. The world is flawed because that is its nature. But humans can become free from confinement in this flawed world and from the unconsciousness that accompanies this confinement. Jesus came as a messenger and a liberator, and those who take his message to heart and participate in his mysteries are, like the disciple Thomas, saved by Gnosis. So this is a really powerful uh, section of this chapter and lays out a couple of things um, that are interesting, and the next section I read will um, fill this out even more. Uh, two things, and again, now I'm speaking from the perspective of me as the host of the Modern Gnostic Podcast, as a priest in the Gnostic Church, my views on, on this theology. Personally, I would be a hubristic fool to say that I am without sin. I sin all the time. I have sinned for as long as I can remember. I don't know if there's original sin. I don't know if I came into this world with sin. But when you look at the definition of sin as the archery term that it was, hermarchia. Hermarchia is the word that we translate as sin. And what hermarchia means is missing the mark. And I have missed the mark so many times in my life and continue to miss the mark. And I miss it in great and small ways. 
I missed the mark when I lied to my parents. I missed the mark when I stole from them to buy heroin. I missed the mark when I robbed people for drug money and lied to people that I loved and deceived them. I miss the mark when I argue with my fiance. I miss the mark when I slough off duties at work. I miss the mark when I gossip and backbite. I miss the mark when I don't fulfill my word. I am a creature filled with sin, and I need redemption from that sin. But in my experience, the redemption, the true redemptive power of the Christ is an awakening in me of who and what I really am. That I am a son of the Most High God. That I am, my spirit, who and what I really am, is of royal heritage and lineage. And the beings of light that we are do not need to lie to anyone about anything. We do not need to steal because we experience no poverty. We do not need to fall addicted to drugs because we do not need to hide from reality. Every sin I can think of that I have ever committed in my life has been when I am not operating as who and what I really am. The Bible talks about uh, wallowing among the flesh pots of Egypt. And I think all of the time when I am not fully embodying who and what I really am, that I have fallen among the flesh pots in Egypt. I have eaten the food and the drink of a foreign people. I have fallen asleep to who and what I really am. And it is the Christ in Gnosticism. It is the Christ that comes into this world to redeem us from that, to show us who and what our real birthright is. So now we continue from the book. Resurrection or Awakening One of the most pretentious accusations voiced against Gnostics by the Orthodox is that they reject the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, there is no evidence that the Gnostics denied the resurrection. They did say, however, that the resurrection, like most events recounted in the New Testament, is not to be taken literally. Some sort of reanimation of Jesus' body may have taken place on Easter morning. In fact, in most Gnostic scriptures, the post-resurrection excuse me. In fact, in most Gnostic scriptures, the post-resurrection Jesus is referred to as the living one, an equivalent of the Latin redivivus, one who has returned to life. But this does not mean that Jesus came back to life in a physical body like ours. Indeed, there was doubt whether he ever occupied a physical body like ours. Physical bodies do not walk on water, pass through walls, or shine like the sun. The precise nature of Jesus' body is a mystery, said the Gnostics, and they felt this applied to both the body he occupied before the resurrection and the one in which he appeared thereafter. In fact, the canonical Gospels are uncertain regarding the precise nature of the resurrection body occupied by Jesus. Certainly, some Gospel accounts suggest that it was solid and composed of flesh. However, others leave room for doubt. The story of the road to Emma—excuse me—the story of the road to Emmaus, recounted in both Luke and Mark, states that John that Jesus appeared quote, in another form. Unquote, and that after he blessed the bread at the table, he simply vanished into thin air. 
In the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene, who surely was well acquainted with her master's appearance, encounters him near the grave and mistakes him for the gardener. After she recognizes him, he instructs her not to touch him. This command, the celebrated Nole me tangere, do not touch me, which gave rise to so much sacred art, can certainly be interpreted as indicating that his body was insubstantial. Elaine Pagels in her book, The Gnostic Gospel, states, quote, So if some of the New Testament stories insist on a literal view of the resurrection, others lend themselves to different interpretations, unquote. Which was more important about Jesus, his fleshy body or his spirit? Even the most orthodox might answer that it was, was his spirit. It is quite understandable, therefore, that the Gnostics emphasize the spiritual nature of Jesus and his resurrection. The two views agreed that, both before and after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to be occupying a body of flesh. Many Gnostics felt that this body itself might be an appearance, and thus they were accused of being docetists. That is, those who think that Jesus' body was purely illusory. However, the concept of an appearance body is well known elsewhere, in the traditions of India, for example. More important for the Gnostics than the substance of Jesus' body is the Gnostic teaching that the resurrection has a deeply personal spiritual meaning for everyone who aspires to Gnosis. For are we not all, in a certain sense, dead and entombed in material darkness, wrapped in the winding sheet of unconsciousness? Is our vision not obstructed by a stone of obscurity and obtuseness? And it is, is it not our deepest hope and glorious destiny to see that stone rolled away and our spiritual nature awakened from its aeonal slumber? If this is so, then why not do as Christ did and resurrect into a new life of the Spirit? Quite so, say the Orthodox, but this will happen only after our death when Judgment Day, the long-decayed and long-vanished flesh of our bodies will rise again. It is here that the Gnostics unequivocally parts company with the Orthodox. The Gnostic is likely to quote from the Gospel of Philip, quote, First Christ rose, and then he died, unquote. And he might add that if we wish to engage in the imitation of Christ, this is what we too must do. For as the same Gospel of Philip states elsewhere, quote, If men do not first experience the resurrection while they are alive, they will not receive anything when they die, unquote. The Gnostics regarded the term resurrection as a word symbol for gnosis or true spiritual awakening. When we awaken to the consciousness of who we are, where we come from, and where we are going, we have arrived at knowledge of the, of the things as they truly are. To the Gnostic tradition, Christ's resurrection is the mysterious inducement facilitating our own resurrection or awakening. If this awakening does not take place, then Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension were in vain. As Angelus Silicis, the 7th century Christian mystic, who was more than a little bit Gnostic, wrote, quote, Though Christ a thousand times in Bethlehem be born, and not in thee, thy soul is all forlorn. The cross at Golgotha standeth up in vain, unless it in thee it be erect again.
The imitation of Christ has often been understood as identification of one's own misfortunes and suffering with those in the Passion and Crucifixion. However, this imitation must also include the resurrection. The Gnostic position is rather clear. In the moment of full gnosis, the indwelling divine spark is effectively released and one rises up from the double sepulture of body and mind, united with the timeless spirit. Forgetfulness falls away. Remembrance of the realities of the spirit returns. This is such an important section on the meaning of the Christ to the Gnostic. I'm going to read this one part again because it just struck me so hard. Most important for the Gnostics, sorry, more important for the Gnostics than the substance of Jesus's body is the Gnostic teaching that the resurrection has a deeply personal spiritual meaning for everyone who aspires to Gnosis. For are we not all in a certain sense dead and entombed in material darkness, wrapped in the winding sheet of unconsciousness? Is our vision not obstructed by a stone of obscurity and obtruseness? And it is not, and is it not our dearest hope and glorious destiny to see that stone rolled away and our spiritual nature awakened from its aeonal slumber? This is the meaning of the resurrection to the Gnostic. This is who and what the Christ is to the Gnostic. And again, speaking as Brian, the priest and the podcaster, speaking for modern Gnostic, I believe Jesus existed as a man. I believe Jesus existed as a unique messenger of the light, as the true son of God, the Christ from tip to bottom, from birth to death and resurrection. But that the purpose of Jesus coming into this world was not to atone us of guilt for our ancestral parents' sin. There's a deep way to look at original sin. And some of this understanding comes from my background in Buddhism and studying other Eastern traditions and the understanding that suffering and ignorance and pain are wrapped up in the fabric of existence. They are there for you from the moment you are born. They exist in you when you are in the womb and they existed in your mother before you were in the womb and they existed in her when she was in her mother's womb and on and on and on and on. The sin is as original as it can possibly be. It's there from the beginning. And I think the uh, early writers of the scriptures of our tradition were looking at mythic answers to how and why this suffering was always there and traced it back through time to the original human beings, which is just to say, I think, that the suffering and pain of the world has always existed for humankind. Indeed, it is the human condition. As the Bible tells us, the only way we will earn our bread is by the sweat of our brow right? Our women will, will be in deep pain when giving birth. Suffering is tied into the human condition. And the purpose of the coming of the Christ is to show us how to shoulder that cross of suffering and move upward to bear it and to be who and what we truly are. So from the perspective of Gnosticism, who was Jesus? Well, you have to study scripture. 
You have to meditate. You have to pray. You have to answer these questions for yourself or better, have spirit answer them for you. You have to seek the mysteries, as we always say here at Modern Gnostic. But if you're asking me, if you're wanting my understanding, who and what Jesus was, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And we are called by Christ himself to become Christ-like because we are also sons and daughters of God. And we are asleep in our sin. We are asleep in our suffering and in our pain and in the illusions of life. But it is through prayer and meditation and worship and seeking these mysteries that we wake up to who and what we really are. And so this is the meaning of the Advent season. We are preparing ourselves for the birth of the Christ, for the birth of the Savior, for the birth of the man, the eternally resurrecting hero that shows us the way to our patrimony, to our inheritance, to who and what we really are, to that shining city on the hill, to the new Jerusalem, to the throne of the Father. This is who and what the Christ are from the perspective of modern Gnosticism. And this is the point, like I said, of the Advent season. So, as we enter Advent, what, what can we do as we prepare for the celebration of Christmas, this, this time as as the daylight grows darker and darker and there you can think of symbolic and mythical reasons and, and significance to that. The light is going away. We are in a time of increasing darkness. But there is hope at the end of that, the rebirth of the sun. And so how do we prepare ourselves for that? We prepare ourselves through meditation, through prayer, through fasting and penance, through discipline, right? Through This is a wonderful time of the year to find a spiritual routine, to commit to practicing every day some form of prayer or meditation or worship. It doesn't have to be something big. If you're not doing anything right now and you take up even the smallest thing, you will be amazed at the results. I can remember as a child hearing the wisdom of grandmothers who would say, if you take one step towards God, he takes three steps towards you. This is a deep teaching. (laughs) This is a deep teaching that you can prove true in many aspects of your life. If you just take one little step in a positive direction, it's almost as if the whole universe starts lining up to push you forward into success. Um, I often help people with physical training, with, with getting into shape and dieting and stuff like that. And, you know, something I tell people all the time, if you're at the point that you're doing nothing, if you just start doing 25 push-ups a day and you do it every day, every morning, you get up and you do your 25 push-ups, at the end of a month, your body will be transformed. Your health will be transformed. If you take that one step in the direction of perfection and improvement, the divine will take three steps towards you. 
And this applies in mundane things, like or seemingly mundane things, I should say, because physical practice is spiritual practice. But it applies doubly in the spiritual disciplines. If right now you don't have a regular practice of prayer, if you commit to the season of Advent from now through Christmas, when you wake up in the morning to say a short little prayer, and when you go to bed at night to say a short little prayer, you will transform your spiritual life. These aren't promises I'm making to you. These are, these are the promises of our tradition. This is who and what the Christ is. So this is a very powerful time of year, uh, friends. This is a very powerful uh, season. It's a very powerful time for our tradition. It's a time for you to prepare that inner manger for the birth of the Christ child. It is time for you to wake up to who and what you really are. Thanks for listening to Modern Gnostic. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, As always, if you liked the show, wherever you're listening, uh, subscribe to us, hit the like button, leave us a review, and most importantly, share the podcast with any of your friends and family who you might think are interested in what we do. Uh, As always, if you want to reach out and get in contact with me for um, help in entering the path of Gnosticism and Esoteric Christianity, you can find me, Brian Stanford, at Facebook. Uh, at Instagram and at Twitter. Uh, Leave me a message, send me a personal message. Sometimes it takes me a few days to get back to them, but I will always get back to you. And if you live in the Asheville area or in Western North Carolina and you're interested in experiencing what Gnostic Church is like, we will be starting up again church services in person uh, in December. And we will be meeting every other week and everyone is welcome to attend and to come experience the sacraments, teachings, and fellowship with other Gnostics. Um, I hope you guys all take the opportunity of the Advent season to prepare yourselves for the return of the Christ and waking up to who and what you really are. And please enjoy the closing outro music from Akira the Dawn and his Meaning Wave series that you can find on YouTube. Check out Akira the Dawn on YouTube. He has great, great, great mixes with Jordan Peterson, Jocko Willink, um, Joe Rogan. Uh, He reads the Stoics. He has Alan Watts. It's great. It's great. Check out Akira the Dawn. And as always, seek the mysteries. So there's a line in the New Testament where Christ says that no one comes to the Father except through him, which is a hell of a thing for anyone to say. I am the way and the truth and the life. That's another one. Here's the idea. It's as if there's a spirit at the bottom of things that is involved in the bringing to being of everything. talk about evolution as a random process, but that's not true. The mutations are random, but the selection mechanisms are not random. What are the selection mechanisms? Human females are very sexually selective. 
That's why you have twice as many female ancestors as male ancestors. So the male failure rate for reproduction is twice that of the female. How is it that males succeed differentially? Females reject. They reject on the basis of what? And the answer is, well, something like competence. How is competence defined? Well, men put themselves in hierarchies and they vote on each other's competence. Let's say you decide to follow the best leader in a battle. Well, then you don't die. Like, he might get all the women, but you don't die, so at least you're still in the game. And it might be the same if you're following the greatest hunter. And the greatest hunter wouldn't be the person who was best at bringing down the game. It would be the person who was best at bringing down the game and sharing it and organizing the next hunt and all of that. What that means to some degree is that there's a spirit of masculinity shaping the entire structure of human evolutionary history. That's what that means. It's the spirit of positive masculinity that manifests itself across epochal ages, millions of years perhaps. And it actually has shaped our consciousness. Actually. It's like the essential spirit of all the great men who define what greatness constituted. That's a spirit. Well, that's a purely biological explanation. Well, that's God. God is the highest value in the hierarchy of values. Well, that's God. God is how we imaginatively and collectively represent the existence and action of consciousness.